So there was a time in our uh, country's history when uh, all of the power, in essence, lied, laid, what is that word I want? Lay with, lay, I think, lied? Yes. Lay, what is it? Lay with uh, the uh, authority figures in our world. Uh, they, they lay with the, the employers. Uh, and, and in the Industrial Revolution, there were tons of jobs that needed to be filled, and there were also even more people that were around to fill them. And, and so laborers, people who were working for these employers, had just horrible conditions. Uh, we had ch children uh, that were in caves and helping in mining or helping with manufacturing the different machines and getting hurt and losing fingers and losing lives and there was just no accountability to those who were employing these children and these even adults who were getting hurt on the job or injured or working uh, you know just crazy amount of hours each week. It was, uh, uh, there was good things obviously that came out of that, but also there was a real struggle that eventually came to a head and we as a country and individuals began to kind of rise up and say, wait a sec, this isn't right. Uh, we shouldn't have kids dying, you know, working when they're just little kids and they shouldn't be in these conditions. As a matter of fact, no human being should be in these conditions and we need to start putting pressure on these, uh, these companies to start taking care of their laborers and their workers. Over the last couple of hundred years, though, things in essence have done a total 360, right? Or 180, I guess, not 360 because we backed where we were, but uh, 180. And so we now have, it seems that pretty much in our country, all of the power seems to lie with the worker, with the employee, and the employer has very little power and it's expected that the employer now really needs to take care of you know all of the needs of their employees and, and don't get me wrong there's there was there's some good things about this and and it's good that we have gone from where we were to where we are now but perhaps maybe we've gone a little bit too far and maybe it's kind of gone over the end the other side we have that pendulum swinging back and forth but but you know the working conditions are better and they should have be, be, they should be better than they were 200 years ago but uh, now employers are expected to make accommodations for their employees uh, in, in extravagant ways. Uh, for a while, you know, healthcare originally was something that employers gave as kind of an incentive to get people to work for them. Now it's, you know, expected. Uh, vacation time and holiday time was something that, again, it was an incentive to get people to work for them because they, they needed more employees, and now it's just expected. And when you get hired, you should, you know, get sick, sick pay. You should get holiday pay. You should get vacation pay, right? And, and, and so, uh, you know, we have kind of crossed the line and gone to the other end. Uh, consider uh, this video that we have that, that is about millennials, but uh, trust me, it's not just millennials that have this kind of perspective, but it's a, a humorous video that talks about, well, an, an, a millennial in an interview for a job. Maybe you've seen it before. Amy, it says, Amy, it says you are trained in technology. That's very good. Are you adept at Excel? No. PowerPoint? No. Publisher? Not really. Exactly in what area of technology mm -hmm. are you proficient? <laughs> Snapchat, Pinterest, Instagram, Vine, Twitter. You know the big ones. I'm surprised you didn't say Facebook. 
old people, like my parents. <laughs> That's funny. Well, Amy, when you're working for me, you have to have those kind of research skills because I'll send you things for you to comb through and get the answers and send them to me. So for that, you've got to be really good at technology. For stuff like that, no problem. I'll just ask Siri. You'll just ask Siri? You know, Siri, tell me this. Siri, find me that. We're all good getting you the answers. Tell Siri I want you ready to go at 8 sharp each and every morning. I don't understand. What don't you understand? What you just said. You don't understand be ready to go? No. You said 8, right? Yes. 8 like in the morning 8? Yes, in the morning. Yeah. That kind of doesn't work for me. Who gets up at eight? I do. I Skype with my French boyfriend in Paris until like three in the morning. I don't even get to Starbucks until like 10 where I order my grande chai tea latte, three pumps, skim milk, light water, 2% foam, extra hot, but not too hot. So if it's okay, I work best in the morning at 10.45. <laughs> wow. Amy, I don't think we're gonna be a good fit. Why are you so negative? I can sense your hostilities and right now I am not feeling very safe. I've been here for over five minutes and the only nice thing you have said to me was nice resume, which I typed all night for this meeting with you. You've given me no guidance, no validation, no encouragement, no supervision. Is there an HR director somewhere? HR director? Yes, I need to speak to someone. I may have to take off today as a mental health day. Take today off, you, Amy, Amy, look at me. You don't work here. Are you firing me? Okay, yes. So good. So this highlights the, uh, the reality, and again, this is not just millennial. This is this is flowed over to us Xers and others as well, right? You know that that you know there's this expectation that we start a job or we work in a job that the the employer needs to do certain things to take care of me, to, to make sure that my needs are met, to make sure that I'm uh, I'm covered and that I uh, get what I what I want and what I need. Uh, is in salary and vacations and all kinds of things. We we really have what is create. We have created basically an entitlement mindset. You know that that I'm entitled to these things. That that if I'm going to work for you, that you need to take care of me. You know, and and that that you have to help and provide for me. That that we expect the authority to provide, but we don't expect from ourselves responsibility or that we need to do anything in exchange. We, we expect that, the, uh, that we, we can have expectations of the authority, but for the authority to have expectations of us, well, well boy, we need to question that. The Corinthian church seem, seemed to have something similar going on even in their church and in their community. Uh, we saw last week that the, the, there was an, there's a tendency, and this was last week, and actually we see it in our passage this week, there's a tendency in the Corinthian church to, to overlook the offenses of God or offenses to God. 
there's this sense that, you know, you know, it doesn't really matter what God says. It doesn't really matter what God desires, that, that they could just live however they wanted, right? They, they overlook the offense so much so that they allowed the immoral brother to continue to be in their, in their church and didn't ever say anything to him because we're just, you know, they're just, he's offending God. That's between him and God kind of mindset almost. And we individually can even think that, that, that we can just overlook our offenses to God. We, we overemphasize, and they, and they did this, they overemphasized the grace of God. But they underemphasized the morality of God. See, they had no expectation that they would in any way accommodate God. It was the reverse. Instead, we see in this week's passage especially that the Corinthian church was oversensitive to their own personal offenses. You know, if, if someone did something against them, if someone didn't accommodate them, then they were quickly offended and took people to court. They, they were highlighting and focusing on the personal offenses, all the while ignoring and downplaying the offenses to God. They, in these oversensitivity, they were overemphasizing their personal rights and feelings. And they were underemphasizing the relationship and the community that they had together. They expected others and they expected God to make accommodations for them without ever expecting that they themselves would make accommodations for others or for God. The passage we're looking at today is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me read that for you. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know what we, that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have a dispute about such matters, do you ask for a ruling for no, from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourself cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brother and sisters in Christ. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. 
You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The cultural accommodation that we have seen, the entitlement mindset certainly has infiltrated God's church in America as well. Like the Corinthian church, we too have overemphasized our personal offenses and rights and underemphasized the offenses against God and his morality. There is an expectation of Christian there's Christians who have expectations of God and the church to accommodate for them. They desire us, we can desire the church and God to accommodate, first of all, in our areas of ministry. That, that, you know, the idea that, and I've actually got a phone call one day at a church in, church in Richland where someone called up and they literally said, no joke, without cracking a smile, I mean, this was serious. They at, the first thing they said, hey, I'm looking for a church that can meet all my needs. I mean, it's just like I might as well hang up right then, right? I mean, what are you doing, right? But there's this sense among us sometimes that we, we think that, you know, the church is there to meet my needs, that God is there to meet my needs, that God has to accommodate me and what I need and what I want. We show up on Sunday mornings with that same mindset, that, that we come in and we think, okay, how I, I'm really feeling down in this area, or I'm really feeling good in this area, or I really need this this, this week. And, and, and so we expect that God is going to meet that need, that the church is going to meet that need. We also see this in, in worship, that, you know, that, you know, the church is going to, and God's going to accommodate my style of worship, that, you know, that when I show up, it, it needs to be the songs that I want to sing. If there's too many hymns or not enough hymns, you know, that, well, wait a second, no, 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 I came here to worship God, and I worship best with hymns, and so, God, you need to make sure, or Laura, you need to make sure that you have enough hymns in the worship set today, or, or I hate hymns, please don't do hymns, or whatever, and so we get back and forth, but we all have, can have this perspective that the church and God is, best, is supposed to accommodate me in worship. Also, we can see that in theology, that God and the church would accommodate my beliefs, if the church doesn't believe what I believe, well, then they need to change and accommodate me. If the God doesn't believe what I believe, then they need to accommodate me. He needs to accommodate me. Well, crazy, right? But it's true. It happens. The version of the Bible that we use, right? You've got to use my version of the Bible, right? This is the sense that sometimes we have. We walk in, we're looking for the church that still uses the New King James Version, right? Or, or the, the church that uses the NIV or the ESV or the Living or whatever it may be, right? 
We also see this in our areas of, of us ministering, that, that the church has to accommodate my strengths, that, the, that, that God has to allow me to minister in the way that I want to minister, in the way that I want to serve, that's, uh, that's about accommodating my own experiences and my vision for what's important and for what's right for us to be doing as a church. Don't know how many times uh, I've heard people come to me or to the lead pastor of other churches and say, oh, I've, I feel like we need to start a ministry to, I don't know, to dogs, right? Whatever, right? To, <laughs> and they, they tell the pastor, you need to start this. And the pastor says, wow, man, that sounds like a great uh, ministry. If you have a passion for that, we just encourage you to go for it and we'll, we'll support you in that. And they're like, no, no, no. Not for me to do, for the church to do, and you need to do it, right? And, and so there's this expectation that the pastor and the church and God accommodate their vision, that what they think is important that we need to be a part of and do. But more so, and probably the most blatant way that we see this is in our, lone, in our own lifestyles. The way that we just live individually. We expect the church and God to accommodate our lifestyle. The ways we see this, I just picked out a few areas that I think this is prevalent in our church for, in, in our church in America. Premarital sex and pornography. Premarital sex is just accepted nowadays, it seems like, in the church. You know, in our culture and in our church. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, uh, you know, as a youth pastor, teenagers or young people in their 20s saying, you know, you know what, everybody else, why wouldn't I live with my boyfriend or my girlfriend? It's, I mean, every not really big deal. Pornography, again, I, I think it's something that, you know, we have overlooked or overlooked in the church, and we kind of allow ourselves individually just to kind of go with it. Well, you know, it's just, well, it's not really bad. It's not horrible. Marriage and divorce. The, the, the church and God has to accommodate my perspective of marriage and what's right and what's wrong. The church and God has to accommodate my perspective of divorce. Even though, the church, even, so, even though Scripture is very clear on some of these things, we like to stretch, you know, kind of find some gray area or somehow kind of try to say, no, no, no it's okay. God has to accommodate me. It's, you know, God, you love me. I know you do. It's okay. Because I'm going to just purposely sin against you. <laughs> what your word teaches. Ambition and coveting. Another one that I think is... You know, we expect the church to accommodate us to be able to do that. I, I remember, uh, remember a, a guy in the church way back, this is 20-some years ago, that came to me like I'd been in the church for like a year. He comes to me, and he's an Amway. He's an Amway. And I'm, we've all experienced Amway before. But anyway, he comes to me, and, and, and he invites, you know, this is kind of like, you know, cheap little trick. But, hey, come over to our house for dinner. Okay, great. So my wife and I go over to dinner, and they're like, okay, let me dump this, you know, uh, Amway thing on you, right? Which, you know, this is so disingenuous and wrong. But anyway, so uh, he does this to us, and so I'm look, looking at it, and I'm ready, but his sales pitch to me is, if I did this, I could make so much more money so that then I would be able to just volunteer my time at the church instead of have to wait for a paycheck. Yeah. Ambition. That, you know, that it's, we, it's okay for us to make more money because then we can give more to the church kind of thing. That's, that's the drive, to get a better job, to make more money. So, and then this is how we justify it. And I'm not saying that getting a better job and making more money is wrong. I'm just saying, why, you know, what's, what's the point? Why, why are we, what are we striving? Pride and selfishness. I mean, this, pride's at the base of all of this, right? But we 
expect the church and God to accommodate our sin. At the, at the core of all of this is an a, a, a improper perspective of humanity. And so this is where I want to zero in this morning. Um, to, to look at how we wrongly look at ourselves. And, and it comes out of this culture that we have in America. And uh, I, I think you'll see it as we walk through it. And you'll see how, how devastating it is and how it has corrupted our churches in America. First of all, the human perspective of self is this, that humans, first of all, we believe that humans are basically good. This is the perspective that we as Americans and I would say most Christians in the church believe that humans are basically good. That if left to themselves, their natural tendency is going to be to righteousness, to goodness, to do the right thing. There's this sense that our culture is continuing to get better and better as time goes on because we as human beings are basically good and we're going to do better things. And so as a culture continues to develop, we're going to be a better and more moral uh, culture. A loving, and then as a result, uh, we believe that a loving and a good God should accept us as we are because we're basically good. Second belief that we have is that humans are intrinsically valuable. That, that, that we, as a human being, we are talented. We have uh, amazing talents, amazing ability, uh, uh, American ingenuity, right? I mean, uh, this is, right, American perspective, right? That, that we can do anything. I mean, this is in our commercials all the time. You know, if you just put your mind to it, you can do it. If you just believe, you can do it. We have so much talent. We have so much ability, so much opportunity. In America, we can make it happen. We can do this. We are valuable. Look at what we can accomplish when we work together. Look what we can accomplish when we just put our mind to it. Look what we can do. We have all of this ability. We have all of these talents. And as a result, God should appreciate what we can do. Finally, and it's basically based on these first two perspectives, humans deserve salvation. If we are really basically good, and if we really are valuable already, then we are worthy of God saving us. I mean, yeah, we've made some mistakes, and those mistakes need to be paid for. We understand that, and we get that. But I mean, really, I mean, we're good, and we're valuable already, and so it makes sense for God to die for us because, I mean, we are worth it. This is a pervasive perspective, not just in America, but in the church. It is an entitlement perspective of God, that we are entitled to salvation. That it's not right for God to send me to hell if I don't bow the knee to him because I'm basically good. I'm basic. I'm so valuable. I have so much to offer. It just makes no sense that God would send me to hell. But as we know, and it's good to review these things at times, the Bible has a different perspective of man. The Bible has a different perspective of humanity. And, and Paul kind of draws this out when he talks about how we have been washed, we were sanctified, and we were justified by Jesus. 
And then at the very end where he talks about that we, had been, we have been bought at a price. And so those four things I want to draw out and, and, and express to us what Scripture teaches about how God views humanity. First of all, washed. Understand, if we need to be washed, that means that we are dirty. But what we don't understand is how dirty we really are. Here's the deal. We are garbage. We are filthy through and through. We are disgusting and unredeemable. We need to understand that this is the perspective. That we as human beings, without Christ, have nothing. We are just ugly, we are sick, we are distorted, we are, we are garbage. Not good for anything. But Jesus picked us up out of the dump and washed us off. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, we were garbage. We had nothing, no redeeming valuable. There was no reason for Jesus to say, yes, I'm going to wash that piece of garbage. He should have just left us there. There was nothing like, oh man, there's, there's potential there. There's, there's hope that maybe someday this thing will be valuable. No, none of that. It was total garbage. Had no redeeming valuable, but Jesus picked us out of the garbage and washed us off. Second sanctified. In order to be sanctified, if we need to be sanctified, then we need to understand that the reason that we needed to be sanctified is because we were not. We were fully and completely corrupt. We were sinners through and through. There was we, uh, total depravity is the term that's used in, uh, in uh, the Calvinistic perspective. And I would agree that we are totally lost. We are totally sinful. Through and through. There was no good in us. It, it, it's not like we just occasionally did bad things. It's not like that, you know, it was just a little trip up one time, and then, uh, oh, darn, you know, I guess I really kind of messed up, so now I need salvation. No, no, no. We were sick. We were, we were sinful through and through. We read it in the in responsive reading, Isaiah 64, 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Even the good things that we did that may have been good in God's eyes, they were still filthy rags. We totally and completely corrupt, but Jesus poured his spirit into us allowing us to not only receive the righteousness of Christ, the purity of Christ, but also now to live in that. It is because of what Jesus did and Him pouring His Spirit into us that we are able to do righteousness. It is not because now that I'm saved, all of a sudden I can just, uh, my, my true goodness comes out. And now I can actually live out that true natural goodness that I am. No, the only reason that we can do anything good after salvation is because of the Holy Spirit in us. 
Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Justified. If we were justified, that means that at some point we were guilty, yes? And the truth is that we were completely guilty. We were destined for hell. It's not like it was just, you know, a, a misidentification, like we got the wrong person, right? Like that you, got, you know, got tripped up, or maybe it was somebody else, and you're just a bad association that you're with. No, no, no. You, individually, all of us, are guilty. And we were destined and deserved to be in hell. And this is true even today. We still deserve to be going to hell someday. But Jesus paid our debt. But Jesus paid our debt. He's the one who allows us to be now called justified because he took his sins, our sins, on him at the cross and paid the penalty for our sin so that now we can be called justified which means that we are no longer guilty. Not because we don't, we're not continuing to sin, but because Jesus paid the price for all of our sin. Hebrews 2.17, For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for, their sin, for the sins of the people. Jesus paid our debt. Finally, bought. If we were purchased, that means that we were up for sale. It means that we were owned by someone else. It means that we were slaves to sin with no hope of freedom. Understand that sin is slavery. Understand that it is not something that we choose to do. Well, we choose to step into it first time, certainly. But it's not something that we can choose to get out of. We are slaves to sin and have no hope of getting our freedom. But Jesus broke the chains. Jesus stepped in when we were slaves to sin and opened up the opportunity now for us to choose a different path. It's, it's a second chance. We made our first chance sin, our first choice to sin, and so we were enslaved to sin for our whole lives, and then Jesus comes along and he breaks the chains and says, now you have another choice. What's your choice going to be? Should it be a choice to go back to slavery to sin, or should it be a choice to go to Christ? Romans 6, 17 and 18 says, You have been set free from sin and have become, instead of slaves to sin, slaves to righteousness. But here is the deal. All of this, to, to experience the washing, to, to enjoy the sanctification, to be labeled as justified, to, be, to have our chains of, to sin broken, we have to make the choice. Jesus 
did all of that. He washed us. He sanctified, right? He justified. He bought. But now we have a choice to make. And the choice is simple. Mark 8, 34. Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up their cross, and follow me. The choice is not a right. We do not have a right to choose to be a slave of Jesus. We do not have a right to be saved. We have to get this into our heads that this is not, we don't deserve any of this. We don't deserve to be washed or sanctified or justified or purchased. But Jesus washed us, sanctified us, justified us, and he purchased us. He broke the chains of sin so that we could have a choice. But the choice is not to say, oh yeah, thanks a lot, Jesus, I'm out. The choice is to then choose to be a slave to righteousness, to Jesus. To take up our cross and follow him, to deny ourselves. And so this is what, with this choice, we are called into holiness. When we make the choice, we are called into holiness. Holiness, first of all, this mean, means to be set apart. And there's three things that I want to zero in on in the church and our relationships uh, so that we can understand this holiness. First of all, we're set apart for love. Not as the world loves. The world loves to love when other people love them. But we are, to, we are set apart for love, which means that we love totally unselfishly. It is not about what the other person is going to do for me. I love them no matter what. It's a choice I make to love them. We never demand others to love us. We instead demand that ourselves, that we would love others. Because we have a God who washed us, who sanctified us, who justified us, who bought us when we didn't deserve it. This is why Paul says, you are already defeated in verse 7. You've got these quarrels going on in the church. You're already defeated because you are so selfish. You are only concerned about people loving you, but you're not concerned about how you can love them. This is why so many marriages end in divorce. is because we have a selfish perspective of love that says that I will only love you if you love me right. If you love me the way I need to be loved. That is not what marriage is about, and that is not what biblical love is about. Biblical love is loving someone despite the way they treat you. We are called out of hate, the life we used to live, into love. John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Second, we are set apart for unity. Not as the world does, where the world demands that in order there to be unity, you have to accommodate me. If you just believe the way I believe, then we can be united. If you just do what I say we should do, then we can be united. 
it is not, that is not unity. We need to find the common ground. We need to recognize, especially in the church, that we all are Jesus's, right? We're all children of God. And that means that we're all equal because we were all equally garbage and now we all equally have been saved. This is why Paul says in verse 7 again, why not rather be cheated? Again, the Corinthian church is all focused on their own issues, their own personal needs and desires, and someone would step on them or do something, and they're, oh, that's so horrible, you're so mean to me, and they're freaking out, and so we're going to sue them and take them to court because that's just not right. Instead of Paul saying, why not just rather be cheated? This is the body of Christ. Can you stop being so concerned about your own personal issues and rights and offenses and just love people? Imagine if we all did that with one another. Imagine, think about that. If we all were focused on loving everybody else and not worried about getting loved ourselves, This is where unity comes. Call, we are called out of isolation to unity in diversity. John 17, 20, 21. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those, and this is Jesus speak, praying, who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. We are also set apart for obedience. Not as the world does. Not demanding that my will be done. That's the kind of obedience we want. Is when it feels right to me and I can do it. Oh yeah, that's, oh I'm good with that. But that's not obedience, right? That's, that's a selfish obedience. That's a focus. This is the way the world does it. It's also not about what the culture says is right or wrong. It is about God's will. God is the one who determines what is right and wrong. There is an eternal, transcendent, unchanging moral standard, and God is the one who sets it. We don't get to go to him and say, I don't really like this law, and so I'm going to live differently. We don't get to say, you know, you know this, I know this is what you believe, but you know what, I, I mean, look at the culture, God. I mean, really, I mean, it's just, you know, it's nowhere, else. It's, it's working fine. I mean, things, it's okay, it's not a big deal, right? No, it is God's will. There is an eternal, transcendent, unchanging moral standard, and this is why Paul says, do not be deceived. People who practice these sins are not going to end up in the kingdom of heaven. And here's the deal. I believe that we all can have, be sure of our salvation. But if you are living in sin and trying to justify it or say that it's no big deal or trying to just kind of live over it, let me caution you. And you should be reading these verses going, oh, what does that mean to me? We should have a sense of holy fear when we are purposefully sinning against God's clear law. That maybe some of these verses should just go, whoa, what does that mean? We have been called out of moral bankruptcy to perfect righteousness. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourself. It is the gift of God. This is all about grace. This is all about grace. People like to go to 2, 8, 2, 8 and 9, and they, and they love these two verses because it's all about grace. 
so I can just go on sinning because it doesn't matter because it's grace. Yeah, God loves me. It's okay. So I can, I can do whatever I want. God loves me. I just heard this the other day. It's okay that I move in with my boyfriend because, you know, it's no big deal, right? Because God loves me because of grace. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For, verse 10, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, to do righteousness, to live righteously, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Salvation is not just about grace and we get all the goodies. It's about us trying and striving to live righteously. All right, worship team, come forward. Just a couple final thoughts. We need to recognize that our culture has infiltrated the church with this entitlement mindset that when we walk through the doors of the church that we expect, because this is an organization, it's an authority figure, that they need to accommodate us as we walk in. We, have, we expect God to accommodate us in our lifestyle and the reality of this culture that we live in. And it's just, it's hard, God. It's hard, right? But when we understand that we are totally unredeemable, pieces of garbage, full of sin, disgusting, no redeemable value, no value in and of ourselves. When we recognize that's who we were before Christ came and changed our life and washed us and sanctified and justified us and bought us, when we understand that, then we can walk into the doors of the church with a sense that, thank you, Lord, with gratitude for what he has done for us and, and, and with an amazement that we can even come in and worship him. That, that, just amazing gratitude that we have people and other brothers and sisters of Christ who will actually interact with us. Jesus pulled us out of the pit and made us clean. We need to bow our knee to him. Jesus poured his spirit into us to make us righteous. We need to have gratitude and worship him for that. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin to justify us. We need to give it all to him. Jesus broke the chains of our slavery to sin and freed us so that we could choose to be slaves to him. We accommodate for Jesus. He doesn't accommodate for us. We bow in eternal gratitude and surrender to God. Loving uniting, obeying for his glory because he is good. Amen.